Well, it's a pleasure to be sharing with you today. It's a pleasure to be participating in this Lenten series. And uh, as we take a look at these seven miracles of Jesus, uh, we continue to be inspired and impressed and uh, informed, actually, as as we get the messages that those miracles contain for us. Our scripture for today, as I said, is about the feeding of the 5,000, and it's found in John's Gospel, the sixth chapter, and it's the first 14 verses. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much green grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. May the Lord add his richest blessing to the reading of his most precious word. Let us come before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to continue to explore these miracles. We thank you for the power and for the strength that are demonstrated. But Father, even more than that, we thank you for the lessons that can be gained, the ways in which these happenings of so many years ago can inform us today And we pray that they would inspire our daily living. We ask this in Jesus' most precious name and for his sake. Amen. So as I said, we come to the fourth miracle contained in John's gospel today. We've looked at uh, changing the water to wine at the wedding feast in Cana, the healing of the noble man's son, and then last week the healing of the lame man who took up his bed and walked. And, you know, this series has really taken me back to uh, my trip in 2012 to Israel. Uh, Those of you who were here then will remember that Josh Beitwerk and I traveled with uh, Galen and Doris Hackman, uh, who Galen was the pastor at uh, Ephrata Church of the Brethren at the time, and and they were our hosts, along with about 30 other people. It was at this time of the year, right before Easter, during the Lenten season, and if you remember, uh, we prepared... Uh, videos that coincided with the sermon series and sent them back, and and they were projected here on the screen. 
you know, in preparation for the, the sermon, I, I looked at those videos again and, and looked at many of the, the pictures uh, that we visited while we were in Israel. And, you know, a lot of the things that are mentioned by John in these accounts of the, the miracles, we visited those sites and, and we learned more about the, the location and so on. We went to Cana. Uh, there's a church that has been built there to commemorate the, that first miracle of Jesus. And as you can imagine, it's a very popular destination for wedding ceremonies and for the renewal of, of vows. In fact, um, we have the PowerPoint up. Here we go. Get the next slide. Maybe you're going to have to advance that, Jay. There you go. There's a sign from Cana. You can see you can buy Cana wedding wine there today at the souvenir shop. You see the souvenir shop? <laughs> a little bit of a misspelling. We also uh, sailed on the Sea of Galilee. That's not really a wooden boat, by the way. It just has wood on the outside to make it look like it was a wooden boat. Uh, and then we also explored the tomb of Nazareth. And there is Josh coming out, coming, arising from the dead and coming out of the, the tomb. Not the best picture of Josh, but that was the one that I had to share with you this morning. And the, the Sea of Galilee and the tomb of Lazarus will feature into the upcoming miracles uh, that we're going to be talking about in coming weeks. But related to... This week's miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. I want to show you this. This is the actual stone uh, on which Jesus stood when he blessed the loaves and the fish. There it is. Well, that's what tradition says anyway. In fact, if you look at the next slide, you can see that a whole church has been built around that stone. It's underneath the altar of that church. The first church was built on that site in about 350 be, uh, 350 A.D., uh, and some of the original mosaics from that church are incorporated into this church. If you look at the next slide, you can see the, the fish, the loaves and the fish there, uh, which was so awesome to see that in person because when I was taking theology courses, that was on the cover of one of my books. And to be there and stand there and see that was just amazing even though it was 350 years after Jesus actually did the miracle. It's still, you know, there's a saying in Israel that if it didn't happen here, it happened 50 feet from here. So, you know, you're, you know you're pretty close. You know that you're, you're very close. Okay, you can put the title. I think there's a title slide there. Um, you know, obviously the landscape has changed since Jesus walked those, those uh, hills and valleys. Tremendous upheaval and destruction has, has taken place. Uh, there have been lots of structures that have been built, massive cathedrals and, and churches and chapels and so on have been built over the original sites. But I have to tell you that when you're there, and if you've ever been to Israel, I don't know if you'll share this feeling with me or not, but you have this sense that you're at home, that you've returned back home. And there's really no other way to explain it other than to, to say that. Um, you know, it, it's like you're returning to your true spiritual home, your spiritual birthplace, so to speak. And if, you've, if you ever have a chance to go to the Holy Land, I would, I would encourage you to take it. Uh, there's one thing that you benefit from, and that is that you're just immersed in the gospel. You're immersed in the gospel and the Old Testament, too. Uh, the whole time you're, that you're there. And so that is certainly a, a benefit. And, and in that sense, you're not really a tourist when you go. You're really a pilgrim 
you're making a trek to connect to your spiritual roots. You know, one of the most important things that we can do and that we really need to do as we examine these seven miracles of Jesus is not to get caught up in the details of the actual miracles themselves. Now, that may sound like a contradiction because it's our purpose during the sermon series to examine these seven miracles in John, the the ones that he included in his gospel. But even more importantly, you know, let's look and try to discover why did he include them? Why did he include them in his gospel? Uh, And, you know, this miracle, this feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle performed by Jesus that can be found in all four gospels. It's the only one that is that common thread all the way through, except perhaps maybe the resurrection of Jesus. That's certainly included in all four gospels. But why did John include these seven? You know, what was he trying to communicate? What message or meaning was he trying to convey? Why did all four gospel writers include this in their gospels? Jesus didn't do anything without a purpose. He always had a purpose. It came out of his all-consuming total obedience to the Father in heaven, his sense of duty, his sense of doing the will of the Father, his words and his actions had meaning. His questions, the questions that he asked, had serious significance. Even his silences had meaning. And in our text for today, he asked Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And John tells us that Jesus asked this question of Philip to test him. Why? Well, John gives us the answer to that too. It's because he himself, Jesus, knew what he would do. Jesus knew what miracle he was going to perform. Now, Philip gave what appears to be, at least on the surface, an honest and practical answer. Basically, he said, hey, it's going to take a half year's wages to even make a a dent in this, to even give these people just a little bit of food. You know, we have to remember that the number 5,000 was only the 5,000 men. You know, very sorry, ladies, but literally you did not count in Jesus' day, and, and neither did the children. And of course, Jesus came to put an end to that thinking, but that was the reality in Palestine 2,000 years ago. You see, Philip was just being practical. He was ascertaining the resources that they had at hand. He was calculating what it would take to meet the needs of 5,000 men, plus all the women and children. But he and the other disciples were about to learn a lesson. They were going to learn a lesson that was a a lesson of true faith, what it was like to rely on divine resources. Well, while Philip is working out his calculations, Andrew sets to work. Andrew goes out and he starts to survey the crowd, and he brings this boy to Jesus. Andrew is known as the disciple who was always bringing people to Jesus. It started with his brother, Simon Peter, brought him to Jesus. He introduced him to the master. Then there was that group of Greeks that wanted some face time with Jesus, and he made sure that they were able to connect. And now he brings this boy, this boy with five small loaves of barley bread and two fish. You know, we don't know what Andrew's attitude was when he walked up to Jesus with this boy. You know, was it futile? Did he have like this feeling of resignation? Was he embarrassed 
to bring this boy to Jesus because that's all there was. Maybe he was scoffing at what the boy had brought. You know, when he said to Jesus, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, like that's going to make a dent. (laughs) But still, Andrew found something, didn't he? He found someone and he found something. The other disciples either did nothing, just kind of stood there, maybe kind of wringing their hands or shifting from one foot to the other. But Jesus does not pass judgment. He makes no comment. And in fact, throughout this whole account, Jesus never gets excited. He's never rattled. He never even breaks a sweat. But he is about to shatter the pint-sized expectations of his disciples who are going to learn the lesson to bring whatever they have, whatever they have already been given, no matter how meager. The same is true for us. When we are willing to let go, to relinquish our hold, even on ordinary things, God can take those ordinary things and do extraordinary things with them, if we're willing to let go. We have to never believe that our resources are too small are too small or too little to serve God. Well, even though the disciples didn't really get it, didn't really get what was going on, which is nothing new for the disciples, right? They were usually pretty clueless. They had to be told and informed. Jesus doesn't exclude them, though. He continues to involve them. And he directs them, tell the people to sit down. Tell them to sit down. And John gives the added detail that there was much grass in the area. I have another slide to share with you. This is on the the banks of the the Sea of Galilee, and it's not a real clear picture because there was some fog over the lake, but all those hills are just covered with grass, uh, very lush, and it's it's true even today. And and Mark, in Mark's account of this miracle, he tells us that the people sat down in groups of hundreds or fifties, so it kind of creates a real picture for us, doesn't it? You can put the title slide back up. You know, does God need us to serve him? Does God need us to serve him? Your first impulse might be to say yes, but the answer to that is really no. He doesn't need us to serve him. He's God. He doesn't need anything. Does he want us to serve him? Yeah, he does. And even a better way to phrase that might be that he wants us to serve with him, with him. In the Knowing and Experiencing God study by Henry Blackaby, throughout that study, he encourages us to look for where God is already working, where God is already doing, already working, and then to join him. Sometimes we think we have to reinvent the wheel. Sometimes we think that we have to make it up from scratch. But really all we're called is to just see where God is working and then join him. Jesus involved the disciples. He involved them in in managing the crowd, keeping them organized, in the distribution of the food, and then in the collecting of the fragments that were left over. They were operating as a team. There is no greater privilege than to serve with Christ, and we are blessed when we do so. There is no greater blessing than to know that we are doing God's will doing what he has called us to do, using the gifts that he has given us. 
You know, some people do not wish to be encumbered or to be tied down by any type of responsibility or duty in the church or in any other ministry for that matter. But that really is the wrong perspective to have because God calls us to opportunities to serve so that we might be blessed, so that we might receive a blessing. He desires every good thing for us and he desires to bless us. Now, I want to talk just a little bit about the symbolism of the numbers that we find in this account. Uh, I was glad that Josh Hostetter did that. He talked about the significance of the number six and the six water jars with the, uh, the wedding feast at Cana when Jesus changed the water into wine. Uh, the symbolism of these numbers would not have been lost on the first century readers that John was writing his gospel to. So it would, we would do well if we considered them. First, you have the five loaves of barley bread. The number five uh, symbolizes God's grace and goodness given to us as human beings. If you look at your hands, we have five fingers on each hand. We have five toes on each foot. We have five senses. Um, God gave us the Ten Commandments, and they're divided into two tablets of five. Five for how we worship God, five how we treat our fellow person. So every time the number five is mentioned... We see it as a benefit to humankind given by God. I'm talking about God's grace. Then there were the two fish. The number two stands for union or decision or fulfillment, all three of those things. You see, there are always two choices, right? There's either right or wrong. There's good or evil. There's yes or no. There's for or against. And then the number two symbolizes a coming together of fulfillment. A man and a woman come together in marriage to form one. The Old Testament and the New Testament come together to give us the fulfillment of God's plan. Sin was brought into this world by the first Adam, and sin was conquered by the second Adam, Jesus himself. So, with the five loaves and the two fish, we have the intersection of God's grace and its fulfillment. And added together, these two, nodal, these two numbers total seven. You know that seven is the perfect number in the Bible. It, it talks about completeness. And then we have the number 12, the 12 baskets of leftovers that were collected afterwards. Twelve is another perfect number in the Bible. And it also symbolizes completion as well as God's power and authority. And how about those leftovers? You know, 12 baskets full. You know, uh, this was after, as John tells us, and when they had eaten their fill. The original Greek means that they were stuffed. They were stuffed. There was no room for dessert. That's what that really means. You know, so once again, why did John include this miracle? Well, there has to be a reason. There has to be a reason with eternal significance. In the water to the wine, we see a transformation. We see the water that washes us, having been transformed into wine. The wine that symbolizes uh, Jesus' blood that redeems us. In the healing of the official son, we find the God of the family. God desires a relationship not just with the sick son, but with the whole family. He wanted the official to connect with him, not just for the purpose of healing his son, but to truly connect with him to have a relationship with the whole family, including that official himself. 
And in the healing of the lame man, God reveals that he is the God of health and not just physical health. He desires that we walk with him on a daily basis with spiritual health throughout our entire lives. So what do we find in this miracle of multiplication, in this breaking of the bread? Well, when you really think about it, Jesus was under no compulsion whatsoever to feed this multitude. He really didn't have to do that. I mean, they had made the decision to follow him. They had followed him out into the, into the no, I can't say wilderness, but, but they followed him out into the middle of nowhere, middle of this mountain. In fact, in, in Matthew and Mark's accounts, this miracle comes immediately following after Jesus and his disciples found out that John the Baptist had been beheaded. And when Jesus finds that out, he wants to get away. He wants some alone time. It was important for him. This was his cousin, after all, and the forerunner who announced his ministry. And so he needed to process that. So he retreats. You know, they go out in the boat. They try to get away from the people by boat. But the people could see them in the middle of the water. And so they just kind of followed them around on the shore. And the next thing you know, there they were. And when Jesus realized this, we read in some of the accounts that he had compassion on them. Even in his own time of sorrow, his own time of mourning, he stopped and he taught them and he healed them. Jesus was concerned about their physical needs. It wasn't just all spiritual with Jesus. You know, remember with Mary and Martha, you know, the Lazarus' sisters? Martha was concerned about uh, serving, about hospitality, and Jesus chastised her about that. But Jesus still recognized the importance of both spiritual and physical feeding. Now, the crowd was probably so large because people were traveling. It was the time we read, uh, it was the time of the Passover was nearby. And people would actually make this trip around the, the north end, where this miracle happened was at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Jerusalem is, of course, to the south. So why would people go around the north end of the Sea of Galilee? Well, it was, they didn't want to go through Samaria. So they would take that trip around the, the north side of the, the Sea of Galilee, Galilee to avoid going through that unclean territory. Well, did Jesus just desire to be a good host? Is that why he fed them? I think it's more than that. Jesus knew the importance of breaking bread together, of fellowshipping in that way, the importance of connecting through sharing a meal together. His own memorial would be connected to eating and drinking, wouldn't it? You know, think about that. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Part of the commentary for our own love feast, which is the three-part full communion that we celebrate twice a year, coming up on uh, Palm Sunday, right after morning worship service in a couple of weeks. The three parts are the uh, a meal, a symbolic meal, feet washing, and then the bread and the cup. And the commentary for part of the meal that we often say is, eating together is one of the highest and most intimate forms of fellowship. Any group of people is more intimately knit together by sharing a common table. This is even more true among those cultures where they share a common dish. Our most intimate friends 
are those whom we invite to share a meal with. You know, I have to, to say, as I thought about this miracle of Jesus, and I touched on this a little bit with the children's sermon, I have to say that I find it very difficult to believe that the only food in that whole crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children was this little boy with five loaves and two fish. I just don't believe that. I mean, so many of them were on, a, on this pilgrimage for Passover to head to Jerusalem. They had to have taken food with them. They had to pack it along. They had to have had it. Why would Andrew only have been able to find one boy with his sack lunch? After all, if, if many of these people were making this pilgrimage, they would have been well prepared. Why could Andrew only find this one little kid? But if they had the food, why would they be unwilling to share it? Perhaps they thought that with that really big crowd, it wouldn't be enough. Perhaps they thought it would be gone very quickly, and then what would they do? There wouldn't be enough for the journey. Maybe they thought that what they had was, wasn't good enough to share. Or maybe they were just plain selfish. I don't know. And then in, in front of all of them, you know, Jesus accepted this meager offering from this little boy. You know, and he takes these five small Loaves. You know, this bread we read is barley bread. It would have been the most common type of bread. Probably five loaves for a penny. The fish, fish probably weren't much to write home about. They weren't fresh fish. If they would have been fresh fish, Andrew wouldn't have had to ask who had them. He would have smelled them. You know, they're probably like sardines. They had probably been brined or, or uh, preserved in oil so that they didn't spoil and they were probably pretty small. But Jesus now lifts these meager gifts upward. And he gives thanks. That's the first thing Jesus actually does in this whole miracle, is he gives thanks. He gives thanks for five loaves of bread and two fish. William Barclay says that Jesus most likely offered the traditional Jewish mealtime blessing, which goes like this. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, who causes to come forth bread from the earth. Now just think with me for a moment. I want to try to expand your thinking a little bit today. Is it possible? Is it possible that the people who had been selfish with their food were shamed into sharing by the actions of this innocent little boy? Is it possible that suddenly the bags and the packs were opened up and the food that they already had, the food that they were unwilling to share, was broken and given away just as the little boy had done? You know, and I don't get me wrong, please don't misunderstand. I am in no way denying what I consider to be a fact, the fact that I believe that Jesus very well could have physically and miraculously multiplied those loaves and those two fish and successfully fed the entire multitude. And maybe that's exactly what he did. You know, we don't 
really know exactly how he performed this miracle. <laughs> but it seems that the older that I get, the more open I am to thinking about God working in even more mysterious ways than what might be obvious to us. Continue thinking with me. Keep an open mind here. Is it possible? Is it possible that Jesus worked the miracle of turning a selfish crowd into a group of sharers, of sharers. You know, which would be the bigger miracle? <laughs> which would be the bigger miracle? Think about that for a minute. Changing the loaves and, and fish to feed the people or changing the hearts of 5,000 men plus women and children? Oh, it wouldn't be as theatrical. Cecil B. DeMille, you know, really wouldn't have done a movie about it, I guess. It certainly wouldn't be as impressive in the eyes of the world. But imagine the impact of 5,000 plus changed hearts versus the opportunity to consume one more meal. You know, here's another thought. Regardless of which miracle you think actually happened, imagine if the boy... Imagine if the boy had withheld his five loaves and two fish along with everybody else, had not been willing to share even what he had. The world would know one fewer miracle, wouldn't it? And it must have been an impressive one because all four gospel writers mention it and include it. God loves. God absolutely loves to use the small and the insignificant. He loves to use the perfect and the flawed. Do you know why? Because when he does, he knows that the credit has to go to him. It can't go anywhere else. It doesn't make sense to put it anywhere else. All glory and honor go to him. Listen to some more verses from 1 Corinthians. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. What are you withholding? How are you holding back? What foolishness, what weakness, what lowly and despised thing are you withholding? Because you think that's what it is. And you know what I'm talking about. We all have things that we think are inferior, things that aren't good enough. And I was standing in the back this morning, and I had a flashback to probably, I don't even want to tell you how many years ago, probably close to 50 years ago, at the old church down on Bethel Church Road. I remembered for some reason this morning 
the first time that I offered a prayer in front of a group of people. And I didn't use notes. And when I was finished, I broke down and cried because I didn't think it was good enough. There, we all have things like that. You know, we, we're too embarrassed or we think we're not good enough or we lie to ourselves and say, I'm not good enough. And that is a lie. We lie to ourselves and we say, you know, I've made too many mistakes. I don't deserve to be used by God. My sins are too great. Read your Bible. (laughs) Read your Bible. The Bible is filled with ordinary people who were used in extraordinary ways. It is filled with common sinners who were called and were given a task that led to the redemption of others. It is filled with imperfect people who were refined and purified by his love, who were given a task that no one else could complete, a special job. And it is filled with example after example of people who were imperfect clay jars, leaky, cracked clay jars that were filled with the treasure of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen? You know, what I've just suggested could run the gamut. The ways in which and the ministries to which God calls us are varied and many. And if you don't know where to start, then start with fellowship. Start with breaking bread. (laughs) Start with breaking bread. You know, why is it that that's changed so much in our world today? We've lost that. We've lost that, those opportunities for fellowship and for getting together and breaking bread. You know, it used to be that people welcomed visitors unannounced into their home. Come on in. People had a cake ready to go or something at least in the pantry. And now if, it's, if you see lights in the driveway, it's like, get down, get down. There's somebody coming to the door. Have we become that mistrusting? You know, but start with something small. It could just be bread and cheese, something very simple. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. It's the food isn't the miracle. And maybe that's one thing that has changed. You know, the June Cleaver whole thing, the hospitality. It doesn't have to be fancy. But the miracle of fellowship is that God has broken down every barrier, every wall and every barrier. Believers are now converted and see themselves and others in God's true agape love, knowing that we are all created by God and in the image of God. We are all saved and we are all cleansed by the same precious blood, the blood of Jesus shed for us on the cross. There is no longer any barrier in Christ. There's no ethnic barrier. There's no color barrier. There's no barrier of any kind. We are all one in Jesus. And the best part, we are all nobility. We are all nobility. We are all children of the king. We have been elevated, elevated to the highest standard obtainable to become a relative, a relative in the one and only true royal family of King Jesus. 
Let us pray. God, help us to see past our imperfections and our inadequacies. Help us to realize that we are children of you, heirs of the King, King Jesus. Father, help us not to hold back in any way, shape, or form and to reach out to one another, each and every one of us, to each and every one of us, in order to realize the full fellowship that you desire for us to experience. We are thankful that you are the God of breaking bread. Help us to remember that it is the broken body of your son who breaks down the barriers and allows us to break bread with one another. Amen.